This is the podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beat of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I am Audrey Tan. And this is David Fogarty. And our guests today are two senior members of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Professor Mark Howden from Australia and Professor Jim Ski from the UK. Welcome both to the show. Okay, welcome. Yes, thank you. So the world can no longer ignore climate change as an issue. Extreme weather events are dominating the headlines and the warning signs are clearer than ever. And to this, the IPCC released three special reports on climate change in the past year alone. And that has also generated a lot of media coverage. Plus, we've also heard statements from government officials, including Singapore's Environment and Water Resources Minister, Masagos Solkifli. We must not take our eyes off the long-term existential challenge of climate change. Otherwise, citizens will take their cause to the streets and reason will fail to rule. So what do you think is the turning point in the way climate change is being discussed Jim, would you like to take that on? Well, I think what has happened is that the planets have aligned around uh, the climate change issue and the drive for climate change action, because we got the Paris Agreement in 2015, which really shifted the dial. I mean, governments had to step up, but also business has paid attention as well. We've got the three IPCC reports that have come out in the last year that have been very clear in terms of the science. And we've seen sort of high levels of social action with children's climate strikes all taking place. And they've all, each one has fed off the other, basically. And I think it's actually the combination of these factors that, that's really led to quite a substantial change. Mark, would you say the IPCC has been the major driver or what about extreme weather, for example? Look, as Jim says, I think it's very much the convergence of a whole range of things and the IPCC has been part of that. And, Mm. And I think in a sense what it's done is provide legitimacy to the perspectives that individuals have started to form. And in particular, if you look at the three special reports, the 1.5 degrees report really emphasised the urgency of the issue and how little time we have to reduce our emissions if we stay below 1.5. The second report, the land report, really emphasised how it was impacting on our daily lives through things like dietary choices and our health as a result of that but also really emphasised that there was a whole series of potential win-win solutions here. And so it wasn't just a negative message, but also a positive message. And the Oceans Report, which dealt also with the cryosphere, really, I think, uh, emphasised the sheer scale of the changes that are happening from the tops of the mountains and the tops of the atmosphere right down to the bottom of the oceans. And in a sense, how the impacts were so pervasive and happening at such a rapid pace and the implications of those for people who live around the coastlines and the majority of people either live around the coastlines or in the mountains. Now, the IPCC is the most authoritative voice on climate change. Perhaps tell us a little bit more about the IPCC for people who might have heard of the acronym but don't really know what the organisation is and what it does. So, for example, when it was established, how it works and how the message on climate change has evolved since the IPCC started in 1988. Jim, perhaps you might want to start on yeah, that. Yeah, IPCC is an extremely complicated organisation <laughs> because I have to say we're never entirely clear who's in charge. We have the countries and, you know, the I in IPCC stands for intergovernmental and that tells you something about the influence. We've got the two host organisations, the UN Environment Programme, the World Meteorological Organisation, and then we've got the hundreds upon hundreds of scientists who actually write the report. So coordinating that is all very difficult for IPCC. 
Now, I would say that the unique feature of it is that it's where science and policy comes together because the reports are actually drafted by the scientists working to a scope that's signed off by the governments. But at the end of the day, the really crucial element of the report, the summary for policymakers, has to be agreed line by line, word by word with governments. And that really gives it a unique kind of authority. So when IPCC has said something, it's not a casual one-off paper. It's something that's been very carefully considered by more than 100 world governments that scientists have been put into. And once IPCC is pronounced on something, it's very difficult to go back on it. Governments can't then go into the political negotiations and step back from what they agreed to under IPCC. And I I think to add to that, the IPCC is, in my view, the single biggest science policy experiment that humanity's ever embarked on. Mm. And also the reports are probably the single most reviewed documents in the history of humankind. Uh, When you actually look at the complexity of the review process that Jim's just talked about, but also the previous review processes. So there's three rounds of review before that Mm. with often tens of thousands of comments, each of which has to be dealt with individually and traceably. And so there's a degree of transparency in the process, which is pretty much unparalleled within my experience. And so I think that the solidness of the IPCC and what it comes out with is an incredible strength. And because it actually not only now connects with the government decision makers, but also business decision makers and many people in the community who are starting to switch on to IPCC. Now, of course, the fundamental basis for these reports are the many thousands of studies, published, peer-reviewed studies that underpin the work of the IPCC as well. So it's basically the work of many, many thousands of scientists around the world. And it's becoming an increasing number because as a rough rule of thumb, the volume of literature devoted to climate change doubles once every IPCC Mm. cycle. So there's an incredible amount of information that needs to be assessed. And I think authors need to become ever more sophisticated in the way they they screen and Mm. assess that literature simply because of the volume that's out there now. And that also gives opportunities for meta-analysis, so bringing together studies of studies, which IPCC is in the process of doing, including through the production of things like atlases, which produce that information, but on a geographically distributed basis. And so I think increasingly we're being able to focus that greater volume of knowledge, but at more specific sort of sectors and more specific regions. We will make this synthesis report to be not only a value-added document for policymakers providing the best available science as did all previous synthesis report but also that it should be a more useful resource for policy leaders around the globe through this synthesis report we will help mend the disconnect between the scientific understanding of climate change on the one hand and the realities of climate action on the other So this is the first time the IPCC is meeting in Singapore. Why was Singapore chosen and what's the aim of this meeting? I have to say, as mere uh, bureau members and and authors, we have no sort of uh, role in deciding where meetings take place. So generally when a meeting takes place, it's because a country has volunteered to host a meeting. And that generally signals that the country is actually attaching quite a big importance to the issue of climate change and is concerned about climate change action. So I think the fact that Singapore offered and was then an agreement was reached with IPCC probably symbolised Singapore's awakening interest in the issue of climate change. That's generally been the case for all the countries we've previously visited. 
And this particular meeting in Singapore is what we call the scoping meeting for the synthesis report. So the synthesis report brings together the information from the three special reports, as well as the three working group reports, and also the task force for inventories information, and pulls that together into one policy-relevant document. So this is the scoping meeting where we sort of essentially lay out the outline for that synthesis report. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now back to our conversation on climate change with Professor Mark Howden and Professor Jim Ski. So professors, other than the recent spate of extreme weather events that have taken place around the world and made people sit up and pay attention to the issue of climate change, what are some of the other climate change impacts that the IPCC has highlighted over the past year in your various special reports? So what we've seen is increasing documentation of change in so many different areas, and it's, it's impossible to go into all of them. But some of them are the incredibly rapid breakdown of ice sheets globally. Uh, this is on Greenland and also in West Antarctica and starting to be in East Antarctica as well. And as a result of that, plus a melting of glaciers, we're seeing an acceleration of sea level rise. And so that's going up and up. So it's going faster and faster over time. And of course, that has huge implications for the huge number of people who live around our coastlines. So sea level rise, as it goes up, significantly increases the risk of flood events and damage associated with those. And so we're seeing that as just one example of impacts, but then it gets compounded by potential increases in the acidity of the ocean. So the ocean is becoming less alkaline because it's absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So the more carbon dioxide we emit, the more is absorbed by the oceans and the pH drops as a result. But then we have compounding things like increasing wave energy, which damages coastline and things like coral reefs, and also potentially increasing uh, energy of the very serious cyclones and typhoons that we experience. And so the damage associated with those big storms increases exponentially with wind speed. And so the stronger the wind speed, the much, much more damage we experience. So these things all add up together. So they're not individual uh, sort of impacts, but they actually converge into a significant increased risk. And maybe if I can just add to that, I mean, although it may seem immediately irrelevant to Singapore, the question of sea ice, if I recall correctly, Singapore joined the Arctic Council as an observer, partly because of concerns about changes in sea level and sea routes. So, so I think it's a demonstration how interconnected everything is. So, I mean, you guys have been in Singapore for a few days now. I'm not sure whether you have noticed that Singapore is a foodie nation. We are a nation that really loves our food. So, um, Mark, you study agriculture, right? Would you be able to share how climate change could actually impact food supplies around the world? Indeed. And so not only do I study it, but I actually grow it. And uh, (laughs) and I make many different foodstuffs myself from bread to beer to jams to olives and other things. So in a sense, I feel a strong connection with food and I look very carefully at the way I produce my own food and how the footprint of that compares with commercial alternatives. And so I think what we're seeing is a recognition now that food is a very, very significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So something around 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions are associated with the food value chain. So that's the production and transport and storage and processing of food. And so it's a far from insignificant component of the total picture. But we're also seeing that a lot of food that's produced is wasted. So it's either lost or wasted. So lost is sort of often where things maybe get eaten by rodents and things like that on farm or affected by disease or wasted where it gets thrown out of uh, supermarkets when it passes its use-by date or thrown out of restaurants if it's not used quickly enough. 
So that cumulative amount of food that's lost to waste could also be around about 30%. Tightening up our food chains could significantly reduce that waste. Tightening up our production systems could significantly reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. And possibly changes in our diets could significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions as well as improve our individual health by reducing three of the big killers of people, and that's type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease and cancer. And so good studies have shown that dietary choices can significantly reduce the risk of those three diseases. Okay. So, I mean, now that the narrative of climate change has shifted, are you guys hopeful that the drastic action needed will be taken by nations and people and companies around the world? It's not IPCC's job to be hopeful. I mean, mean, countries never ask for that in reports, and I don't think we would get the word hopeful through one of these sessions where we go through things word by word. But, I mean, I think it's worthwhile saying uh, we are certainly far, far away from where we need to be if we were to limit global warming to well below two degrees as required by the Paris Agreement. There's a lot, lot more to be done. But that doesn't mean that all is lost because we have seen a lot of changes in countries already on lots of positive signs. The cost of renewable energy has fallen dramatically and we're seeing a very rapid uptake of renewables that's probably faster than anybody anticipated. Moving to cleaner vehicles for private transport, the electrification of transport is proceeding very quickly. And it's absolutely the case that the pledges that countries have made so far under the Paris Agreement definitely take us away from business as usual. So we're moving in the right direction, but we still have a long way to go. And I think one of the worrying sort of signals there that the science shows is that our greenhouse gas emissions continue to increase at a global level. So they increased about by 2.7%. In 2018. And so to achieve the Paris Agreement goals of well below two degrees or 1.5, we have to turn that around. We have to start reducing those emissions. And the concern that was expressed in the 1.5 degrees IPCC report is associated with what we call the emissions budget. And so we, we have a limited amount of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases we can emit and still stay below 1.5 or 2 degrees. And every year we continue to emit at the same levels or higher levels, we choose significantly into that budget. So it's almost like something like about 8% a year to keep below 1.5 degrees. And so at the moment, we're not actually going in the right direction in terms of our emissions trajectories to achieve those Paris Agreement goals. So I guess in order to achieve all those broad changes that are needed, you need systemic economy-wide changes. But what would you say is the role of the individual? Is there any positive action that people alone can take? I think all of the IPCC reports have noted changes in behaviour that would make a big difference. And Mark's already touched on one of the biggest ones already with dietary choices. The other one is the choice about how people and how much people move around. Very obviously, aviation is the most rapidly growing sector and uh, one where we need to pay attention. But just to say that, I mean, it's not all just a question of individual choice. People need to operate within the right kind of framework. I mean, in my country, in the UK, we can urge people to take public transport instead of using a private car. But if there are two buses a day, it's not very practical for people to make these changes. So it needs a combination of kind of policy action, regulatory action frameworks, coupled with trying to motivate people to make these individual choices. But the choices have got to be possible before they can make them. And I think, too, there's an emerging narrative which moves us away from action being a cost to action potentially being a gain. And that's not only in terms of climate change. So action on climate change can restrict future negative impacts. 
but it's also about shorter term choices. And so we can demonstrate there's examples right now where choices which are made to either reduce emissions or adapt to climate change are already advantaging particular companies. So for example, if you're into renewables, there's a huge amount of money to be made in terms of solar photovoltaics or, or wind turbines. If you're, if you're running a car where you, you do lots of driving, it's actually already cheaper to move to an electric vehicle than it is to a petrol-powered vehicle because the maintenance and running costs are so, so much lower. And so in terms of adaptation, we have industries who are moving location for essentially climate insurance purposes, but they're finding that they can actually make decisions which are benefiting them right now as well as potentially benefiting in the future. So we need to nuance the discussion, not only associated with potential costs, but also with the benefits that arise from effective action. I think that provides us with some interesting food for thought. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times and The Business Times online.